welcome to another episode of Three Wise DMs, the podcast where three dungeon masters, who've been doing this for way too long, talk about all the things we try to do to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by... Tony. Now I've had the time of my life. No, I never felt like this before. Yes, I swear it's the truth, and I owe it all to you. I couldn't. I, I was trying. To <laughs> you turned it to, it, to, to Mr. Herbert. From the, I was trying to find it all day. Answer. I've lost my falsetto. I've lost it. <laughs> I've tried to find it for like two hours. And it was sounded just like Herbert, yeah. Yeah, hey, the female vocals, I would have put the helium, but I mean, you know. <laughs> hey, newspaper boy. That is a great choice of song, though, because we have had the time of our lives over this past year. And yes, yes, we are saying that about the 2020 and the 2021. We're saying that about COVID. We had the time of our lives because it's been one year putting out podcast episodes for you folks there at home. This is, in fact, our one-year anniversary episode, the very first episode of Three Wise DMs, posted on June 21st, 2020. And this one should go up June 20th, 2021. So, gentlemen, give yourselves a round of applause. We have to be here. And all of you listening who've stuck with us through the year and have and have joined us through the year and are helping us grow, thank you. Uh, we do this for you. And it's been a been a really great run. We're having a ton of fun doing it. We're going to keep on doing it. We are we are not uh, not showing any time any. We're not planning on stopping this anytime soon. You won't get rid of us that easily. And uh, however, this is a wonderful time for us to look back at that first episode, that tin sounding, um filled episode that we called episode one guys have you given that a listen since then yeah yeah so tin sounding we didn't have our sweet microphones that we're currently using but i really enjoy doran's new intro because the first one i realized was super flat and then <laughs> so was i and then tony sounds exactly the same like he's still making jokes he's still you know, energy really? and me so? and Thorne are like, it's like we're on uh what's that SNL skit with the two ladies on the NPR radio? <laughs> That's what me and Thorne are like for the whole episode. They're the ones with Pete sweaty balls. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, Tony's a pro. T T Tony's got it down. Me and you, we had to, you know, we, we, we had to find our feet. Tony is a pro with these things. He just had it from, from episode one. Yeah, that's what happened. I felt like I was so stiff. Like I was lying in bed for 40 hours straight and I was trying to get up and like go jogging. <laughs> it did. You know what, though? As I listened to the episode, we did loosen up and we got flowing. What the problem was, I think I talked for roughly 60% of it. No. <laughs> we have definitely gotten better so. balance. Dave, what was your song in that one? It was. No. Rock and Roll DM did not appear for a good. Oh, probably a dozen episodes. We were like podcast babies back then. Yeah. We were zeroth level commoners starting that thing. Yeah. As you said, you were, as your namesake, you were the one, you know, leading this expedition as Thorin. And I said, I was a newbie, so I must be the Bilbo of the party. And then I'm, <laughs> so now, you know, a year later, I'm like Bilbo, like after Mount Erebor, you know? Okay. Like, okay. I'm like, I, I faced down a dragon, you know, I stole some shit. You know, Rydalic found. I'm supposed to, to want to throttle you. I started to write a book. 
you know, I'm celebrating my 111st birthday. You you do need to give me that Arkenstone back. Yes, that's uh, <laughs> that's my prized possession. Now. I want that back. No, 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 no. I, I want that back. That wasn't part of your share. Is that just a vast irony that you found the Ring of Eternal winner in my game and kept it? Yeah, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, it's art imitating life. Imitating is, art. Because that really might as well be the one ring. Like, because now Roderick has an indefinite life, and it's evil, and it speaks to him, and... He's but there's no Sauron tracking him down, or maybe yeah, there needs to be. I'm interested to see if we ever if we ever came back and did like a little like uh, multi night uh, adventure with that group again. Be interested to see what happens. I think we'll Zhang. I'm I'm ready to bring Zhang back out. Although two of the characters have said they are retired. This is our Storm, and of course for those of you who've been listening along, this is uh, we're talking about our Storm King's Thunder game with Roderick and Zhang, which we wrapped up. A game we announced we were starting on that first episode, and we have actually finished inside of a year. Yeah, yeah. I love that on my tombstone. I finished a complete D and D campaign, beginning to end. <laughs> Not your first, though. Not your first. No. I've run through Bloodstone with you. Uh, I know you did. A, well, you did. You did the Dungeons of Greyhawk at one point, didn't you? Oh no, I did a lot. Yeah, Pro- more than I'll probably be able to remember if you put me on the spot for sure. I'd miss. You, you have many. absolutely done more book modules than any either of us on this on this podcast. Like, and that's why it, I have no desire to do book modules. There you go. Well, I can relate to that. As much as I appreciate the material they put together, and some of it really, like for Storm King's Thunder, was fantastic. But, my God, I felt like I was prepping for an exam. (laughs) That is the problem with book modules is, you know, it's funny because we're going to talk about the first episode here. We're going to go back to, you know, what we're really going to try to do here is we're going to talk about, you know, what did we go into that episode with you? Because that episode was themed around what are the things we have the most trouble with? And we asked you, the listeners at home, to send us what are your problems that we'll talk about in future episodes. And we did. We've gotten quite a lot of those. I think what we want to do here today is take a look at what those problems were, what we thought were problems then. See, uh, do we still think they're problems? Do we still agree with what we thought a year ago? What have we learned from this year of D&D podcasting? And, you know, how have we changed our minds or doubled down on the things we believed then? And one of the things that came up, I mean, so um, we had, it looks like, six different things that were, that that we came into the episode saying we have problems with. Dave, you have a list, right? Yes. Like, generally, kind of what we all went around the table and we kind of said, what are the most, you know, as an introduction, uh, what were the most, the things that we most had trouble with, Um and uh, for me, it was, as I had said, it was that uh, it was the unexpected. It was when the players mm-hmm. turned left, you know, um, which I had said at the time I was evolving with. And I, I obviously have for, for this whole year now, as we've been kind of talking about. Um, and then, you know, Tony had his one that I had to have him explain because I didn't even know what the hell traumatized players meant. You know, I think I feel like I get a better um, uh, I'm getting a better uh, uh, feel of it. Now, everybody, <laughs> everybody loves that. I still hate the stun mechanic. That hasn't changed. Yeah. It, you banned it from, from Storm King's Thunder. I think nothing wrecks a game. This is my personal preference, but nothing wrecks combat game flow like making someone skip a turn. That sucks. How do you like to sit around? You're waiting seven minutes to come around. Dave, you're done. Okay, Thorne, go ahead. <laughs> Let's go all the way That's around. That's the game, man. We, you get paralyzed. You get petrified. You get stung. There it Personally, is. That's the game. I see I where did, he's I, coming from. I, 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 see where he's, I see where he's coming from, though, because the game thrives on when you get to take your turn and do your cool shit. And there's really nothing that takes the fun out of it more than you don't get to take that turn to do that cool shit. I'm yeah. going to go to the bathroom. It's I will like, tell you, though. 
Uh, I'm, I'm always saying some of the character concepts that I'm playing with. Um, like, so some of the new ones are the, uh, the GIF that's in essence an explorer, uh, archaeology kind of guy, but he's also kind of like Teddy Roosevelt. That came to me uh, with Thorin, with the Woodstock Wanderers game when we met a GIF and I saw the picture again and I'm like, oh God, I just, I'm, I'll just be Teddy Roosevelt out in the safari in the jungles of Chult or something. But my newest one now, I want to be a monk, but I don't want to be Kane from Kung Fu or anything like that. That's been done. I want to be like the old 1890s pugilist. But but in yeah, and he does the whole fists up like he does, rules. Yeah, like and he always <laughs> talks about being bona fide and stuff, you know, like that kind of thing. But he has a monk abilities, but in a pugilist style way. So also feel free, listeners. I mean, feel free to use all of these amazing character concepts. Uh, just you know, uh, let me know how they go because they're probably awesome. I highly recommend the Epic Rap Battles of History take on Teddy Roosevelt. They have him debate Winston Churchill, and I think that is the whole time you're talking about. I'm like, I can just hear this, you know. It's, Fully it's a I'm, challenge. I, I, to I tell you what, it would probably turn into is me having watched Night at the Museum one more time and just doing the Robin Williams Teddy Roosevelt. I think that's all it would turn that into. Is, that is a much more family friendly Teddy Roosevelt. I'll say that much. <laughs> Doesn't curse nearly as much. Actually, I'm not sure if there's curses in that one, <laughs> but it's. Uh, we got we got to get some we you know, obviously the answer is we need more need to get some more games together to do these things you know if we're, but if we're going to come back to that first episode why don't we start with the first thing we talked about there Dave dealing yeah. with the unexpected so that was yeah. one of that was the one of the things you felt like you had a problem with beginning of this year do you still find that to be a problem or kind of how have you what have you learned about it over the year oh that's a great question over the years fifty episodes worth of time now fifty two uh, this is episode fifty two oh god. It's insanity, people. It is. Insanity. Halfway to um, Yeah. And it was kind of bull because as I was re-listening to the to the episode, um, I I talked about how this is the the question that we're gonna be circling that drain for the whole time. And it's kind of what we've been doing, right? In different ways and 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 learning a lot from each other in that way. But for me, with the unexpected, I don't feel as you're always dealing with the unexpected. It's always something where they're going to catch you. They're going to do something that makes you go, uh, what? Wait, uh, uh, okay. Um, right. And you're going to, let me make a pot of coffee. I need to pee real quick. Hold on. <laughs> Over attack, right? Whatever. But for me, one of the biggest things that helped with it was starting to, as I've written in articles about stuff, is planning for the next session only. You know, knowing where the characters are, the lengths to where they could go and having a better idea. So I don't have to feel like I have to prep as we've talked about the entirety of the world, as it were, uh, which I know a lot of people run into with that. Uh, so planning for the session. And I always, I'm going to give him credit because it has changed my entire style of prep, which has made it way more freeform and way lazier is Mike Shea, the return of the lazy dungeon master. Secrets and clues. I I will recommend everyone go out and check out his his book and check out Secrets and Clues. It is it's simple, but it is it's ground changing. At least it was for me. I like some strong prep. However, I have a caveat for the unexpected. If I've got you in a railroad and you want to jump off the train, that's fine. But carrying the story, you're now driving it. 
yeah. I think that's fair. I had something prepped. You were going, the train was going to town. You said, screw the town. We're going west. Okay, fantastic. What are you looking for? You're you're in the desert now. There's cactuses. There's buzzards. What are you doing? We have pivoted from a story-driven story to character-driven. Go. Have you done that? Has that happened in any of your games? Not in recent times, but it has happened. There are times where guys just go off on a tangent. And I'm like, no, this is actually working. Like, you got to feel the room. Look around. People yeah. are laughing. Like, like you're going to see. Like, I saw on uh, Thorne's uh, Call of Cthulhu game Friday, I could tell. here, like, is this going okay? And everybody's laughing. I'm like, yeah, this is, this is, like, this is what we're here for. Like, this is fantastic. Maybe this isn't, that th- like, that dark, serious, thick gloom that you would expect when you're I have no problem with that. But yeah, oh no, my god, we're just laughing like we're crying in a Lovecraftian <laughs> horror game. But yeah, it just it, you know it was what it was. That's fine. Uh, you'll be crying later. Laugh now. I mean, part of my crying is because my character, Doctor Conswell, is literally almost insane. I mean, I have half of my sanity, and that's on a good day. You know? And for some reason, he's like, I want to continue this career as an investigator. I think this is the logical way to proceed. No. I think he qualifies as a, as a wise DM now. But that works, Maybe. though. It's like right there. That totally works for the character, because if he's kind of literally like kind of losing his screw, then this does kind of seem like I need to I need to figure this out. This is my this this is my Rosetta Stone, you know, uh, so I think it does play into the character that way. Getting but more, getting more and more into the Black Book of Ivan. More yeah, getting deeper and yeah. deeper in. Sack taking, his, taking that sanity off the top as we go. I want to know how you, uh, I want to know the spell mechanic in Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> I haven't played with it yet. I, I have all these magic points and I don't know what to do with them yet. It's a lot like uh, Magic the Gathering using old black cards. It's like, all right, so I inflict five damage to this player. Let me just smash my hand with a hammer. All right, that's great. Let's do that with your brain. <laughs> I'm going to sacrifice my own sanity in order to hurt you. Here we go. You're going to, this is going to really wreck your day. Let me cut my fingertip off. I'm sawed <laughs> off with a freaking uh, dull knife. It is, it is a fun game to play. I got to say, coming out of that first episode, you know, I really doubled down and tripled down on how I was the improv DM and, you know, I come in without a plan. I, yeah. As we've gone more, as we've gone on this year, as we've gone more <laughs> World 20, I wouldn't say I'm prepping a whole lot more, but I definitely know. You know, we, we talked about this in subsequent episodes, too, that there's a method to running improv. Yes, you're coming in ready to let the players do anything. However, if you've done it right, at the end of last episode, you knew where they were heading. So you kind of at least know what you're doing there. And so I guess I got to say my style is still he- heavily improv, but I do put more prep into it than I made it sound in that first episode. Like, it definitely involves, okay, so we're heading there next time. All right, we're breaking. I'm going to give you guys XP, and I'm going to come out, and I'll know how that looks next time. Do I need a map? I'll grab a map. You know, it's it's that kind of, like, it's like on the fly informed by what the players are doing. That's, that's, that's the thing, because it's never totally off the top of your head improv. It can be. I can do that, but it doesn't have, it, it, it's usually not that. And you also talked about how you never run book modules anymore for those reasons. And in Cthulhu, mm-hmm. uh, we have been running only book adventures so far because we're kind of yeah. trying to all, in a way, learn the system, right? Even though you've played it before in other versions, you're still trying to get through something. So having to put that together would be we haven't, a little tough. We haven't played other versions. We have tried 7th edition before for like two games. And now this is the first real 
long-term 70 game we're running and we are still all learning it. And I really am having a hard time getting my head around the skills and what they do mm. to the point where we've had sometimes where the players That's, like, well, yeah. just, 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 just invent a skill to do that. And I'm like, well, I can do that. You can always do that. I want to figure out how the system's supposed to work and then we can add skills and make yeah. it later, but I don't want to start by tweaking things and you never learn how it's really supposed to work, you know? Yeah. So, so we're in that point now where it's like, okay, how do you make an insight check? Well, we don't have insight. How do you make a uh, streetwise <laughs> check? We don't have streetwise. What skills do they have in this game? None of this makes sense. Is it history? <laughs> Anthropology? I just want to like know to if you read the paper. language skill. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely taken some getting used to, and that's I got to do more studying up on the best way to adjudicate these things, and that's just a matter of me getting to learn the game. But I am, yeah, we've run the starter modules and the modules that are in the 7th edition uh, Investigator's Handbook, in part two because it's mystery-focused. So if you're going to do a good mystery, you kind of need to have the clues and, and the yeah. solution in the end. That's Having, one thing you brought up, that yeah. you, you kind of, to improv that would be kind of tough because you'd have to have all of this stuff just fit together in the end. And that's kind of tough when you're just going off to see your pants. And it helps to have clues ready to go. And like, I'm even running into trouble with some, it's not trouble. It's good trouble. It's a really, it's a really fun system. We're having a good time, but like, I know the game's better if I can pull in real 1920s events and jargon. So like, yeah, yeah. the Yankees be uh, the, the Red Sox. You're, you're in Massachusetts and they're talking about the Red Sox beating the Yankees last night. You can do that kind of thing. That's going on. Then you can talk about Jack Dempsey. Jack Dempsey is in the, is basically towards the end of his title run. He's at, he, is right at the very height of his power not long before he loses the title you can drop things like that in but then we ran into some atlantic city connections i'm like what was and i'm looking for okay what's the famous casino in the 1920s atlantic city and i'm googling this (laughs) in the whole i'm like why can't why i feel like this should be something that is like at my fingertips only later did i find empire Yeah, it only later did I find out there were no casinos in Atlantic City or in America at this time. The first casinos were in Las Vegas, and Atlantic City doesn't get one until 1978. So, like, uh, there were hotels. Like, there's, like, the Ritz Hotel. Oh, are me surprised. Yeah, there, there's all sorts of hotels that had gambling and liquor because basically Atlantic City ignored – they totally ignored prohibition. That was the deal. So Atlantic City became the nation's kind of resort and convention hometown because they were the only city that was flat ignoring prohibition. And they had Nucky, oh. the guy the guy played by Steve Buscemi in Boardwalk Empire. He told everyone, yo, okay, prostitution, liquor, gambling, run it all. You will not be bothered as long as I get my cut. And they weren't. He managed to keep the feds off them. And they were able to run Atlantic City like its own little Tortuga for, for that for all throughout prohibition. And then apparently he gets in an argument, he gets in a fight with Hearst over, they both like want the same girl and Hearst starts running and, and, and Hearst in retaliation starts running hit pieces about how terrible Atlantic City is. And boom, the FBI is down there that week. So that's how it all came apart too. Like that, that's, 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 uh, that's, that's the entire story there. I have learned that since our game, because I went looking for these things because I couldn't, I couldn't, you can't improv real life. I mean, you can, but it's the just like, around all the bases here. I got yeah. You know, it's just, it's really kind of like history buff the role playing game in some ways. It's it's you know it's history buff with some horror. <laughs> no, that is that's a good point though, Thorne. Between because we're talking kind of about how you know you were very much very hard on the improv side of things in that episode, and you still are, right? I mean, very much so. You are very much at home when you are. I I have my fight card put together and I got generally where they are in the world. What do you guys want to do? Let's see what happens. Kind of. I'm thing, never right? going to panic with his the players go a direction I didn't right. play for. Never. But, I'm always going to be able to roll with that. 
that can ch- that's that's a little easier in a fantasy world where you've created the fantasy world, right? That got enough what exists in. By the way, as I said earlier, that was the episode we had just learned in the session prior that about Gadanathwa and that the world was his egg. So, like, we're now a year <laughs> after this, and we're, like, on the race to try to figure out how to have the egg not explode. Um, but <laughs> It has come together Depending on the system, right? So, two points. One, the Call of Cthulhu system, uh, which is very clue-focused, very mystery-focused, and that's hard to improv unless you just... I don't know, you've read, you know, tons of mystery novels and you just, you, your brain thinks that way. Oh, yeah, there are some people that probably do that. Cool. And even even but, more, what you might not catch yet, the system yeah. works best when I can give you guys handouts. You can't pro- improv yeah, a handout. You can't no, improv no, no, a you're going to write it out as, we're, as you're talking about it, right? So that's one thing. So the system itself might preclude you from really being able to improv totally. Okay. Uh, but the second one is when we were playing in that kind of modern dying or fantasy world that uh, Bonnie's nephew had created where I was playing Aaron Pendragon, my paladin in essence, you know, he was a security officer. Now he's a paladin. It was taking place in, we started in King of Prussia. That was in essence where that's where like all of his, all of her family is situated around. They know the King of Prussia mall. They know four thirty. They know all of these roads and everything. And it actually got in the way of Jake, the DM, being able to improv and run things because they went, no, that's not where that store is in the mall. Or, no, that's what this one exit is here, where the player knowledge, like in Call of Cthulhu, if you're with a history buff, you're screwed, man. If you try to pull something like, oh, no, you can't get a Tommy gun. Well, what do you mean? According to the statute of, you know. So depending on the system and depending on what world you're playing in, that can you know, it's harder to improv, so you might need to lean towards some. Well, some you could always just say it's it's a world very similar to ours, and just take everything <laughs> else and shove it off your desk. <laughs> if you are going to improv a mystery, the the I would have to recommend I would keep my clues that I wanted the uh, players to find available for me, and I would just allow them to indeterminately find them throughout their travels, their searches, what have you, because you still need to reach a logical conclusion at the end, or you might as well just attack them with monsters until you can stall and figure out what the hell is going on. I'm going to pick up the answer. I mean, it's uh, it, it, what you have to do essentially is you need a certain run of characters and clues that lets the players unravel what's going on. And you can't have the reveal be that surprising. The players need to get to it before you get there in order for a mystery to work well. So you need the yeah. you need the trail. So yeah, yeah, if you're going to improv a mystery, and that's why I haven't really crossed this Rubicon yet, is because what I'll need to do is basically have sketched out, okay, so here's what they're going to find. Here's the clues. And I'm going to let them tell me kind of what they go looking for, and I'll figure out where they put the clues. Having said that, in that case, that doesn't it's not the same as trying to run like a fantasy module, where I'd rather just ad-lib stuff yeah because having a written module does help with that now i'm sure i'll add i'm sure i'll improv them in the future i'm sure plenty of our listeners improv call cthulhu all the time it just i think you know i gotta get a handle on the system and yeah it's this whole it's this whole history buff thing having said that you know like like tony said you could say it's just a world very much like ours because of course as far as we know we don't have shogos running around you know so far. Far. at least not as far as we can tell the listeners I mean, <laughs> 
it, you know, I mean, it is a fantasy world at the end of the day, but it's it's that very similitude at thing that we talked about in our early episodes that if you're in the real world, you want to pull in the real history because it just makes it feel so real. And they can actually go Google that stuff. Like you guys were in Rockport. I'm on like Rockport Historical Society pulling pictures of 1920s Rockport out. And I'm showing you guys, yeah, this is the actual car you're at. This is the actual church you go to. That is really neat. You know, it's it's there. I can show you what this looks like for you. You know, it's cool. It's um, but it just takes a little more work. And it's work that I do think pays off more than to me running kind of D&D modules because, you know, a and d module, I'm going to make that up. Yeah. So if I'm prepping something like if I did a Call of Cthulhu one or uh, for instance, and real quick, just because you said uh, we don't think there's showgirls running around and stuff, it just reminded me of the meme we shared the one time where it's Cthulhu has risen out of the ocean and there's a little dude standing on the thing, <laughs> and it's like Cthulhu's there, and it's like, and it just says me asking him to teach me Eldritch Blast. Yes. You know? <laughs> but anyway, but for instance, we're talking about our Marvel campaign, and we've started to throw around the idea because Tony just one shotted one, which was really fun to, in essence, we're creating our own Marvel Universe, so now maybe we could all start to run an adventure or something in this. For that, that's something where I feel like my prep would probably increase because everyone coming to the table has a really heavy knowledge, generally speaking, of Marvel. Now, can I change it? Yeah, you know, because it's our, you know, it's Earth, you know, 623 or something, but... You still have to have your, you know, your Baxter building or your Avenger. You have to have explanations for that stuff. So my prep would definitely mm. increase for something like that. I think for a one-shot game, your prep's going to be higher because huh. – well, of course, for a campaign, you have general ideas that you're going to hit. In a one-shot game – and I just wrote an article on this – you want to start strong and end strong. Your hook has to be powerful, but it has to be like a joke you're listening to that sounds funny in the beginning. It's got to go somewhere. Mm. So all that material needs to flow. It needs to transition from scenes. You, I, you don't want to go too crazy. And if I could give you some advice or something, perhaps I would have changed a little bit from the one shot I just did. Just be careful. You don't wind up with all your NPCs and everything writing yourself too many lines because mm. then you may – uh, find yourself cutting into like the player's interaction ability. Like I actually had other lines. I was at the the uh, deliver with Felix when he got back to you about what happened, and I cut it. I'm like, no, nope. uh, he got up on stage, he delivered what happened, and I think that's sufficient. And we'll get to that maybe later. He'll he'll tell you about that. But so Tony, do you when you're prepping, do you how much? actual line material are you putting out in terms of dialogue i know you will do cutscenes, and you have those put up you know you have those those kind of written out for yourself but in terms of actual dialogue do you have key points or do you literally write out like i have a script sentences really i have an actual script so for example uh when i pulled the hook they uh, introduced a new player which first i wanted to have that to be very clear I made a mistake yeah. previously when we did a scene and some of the details weren't clear in Storm King's Thunder of what happened, you know, at the end of that game. Moving into the next one, there was there was some confusion. So to avoid that, we introduced a new character and made that super clear in his appearance, his abilities, why he was there. And then I transitioned into the point of what is the hook of the story. So when um, you defeated the Sentinels at uh, Dr. Kittering's house and then the Grand Master arrived. 
and the cutscene. If you're doing a cutscene, you should have a really clear idea of what's going to be said because it's like if you can't convey the point of the story cleanly, they're not going to get it. Mm. Yeah, that's true. You got you really have to know what information you want to convey, and even even from an improv point of view, because I I don't script those things. But if I hit a cut screen and start to ramble, it's going to pretty much lose the lose the party. You need to really have a clear idea of what you're trying to communicate. And oftentimes my conversations, even when they're improv, it is they're asking the party questions and then acting off of what the party says. You know, I'm trying not to go on too long. So if you're improving, like if you're going to improv a long speech, you're going to need make sure you know what you want to say. Absolutely. You know, because because if you don't, you're just going to stumble through the whole thing. Ramble, and, ramble, ramble. <laughs> and there was there was a lot happening because you met a new NPC. You met a new P- NPC who became a PC. My PC got warped out of there, so he's removed. And now this other NPC is arriving and plot dropping. Yeah. And it was a yeah, relatively complicated point. I was introducing a new villain, why you're about to do what you're going to do, and how it ends. And then I was going to cut you to make your decision, cut off. Uh, that scene to let you make your decisions on how you want it to proceed. So it sounds like we've all mellowed out over the year. Tony, you're, you're, <laughs> you're still prepping a lot, but you've got a plan for how you handle improv. If the party wants to go do their own thing, I'm still improving a lot, but I got to admit I'm doing more prep work than I kind of admitted in that first episode. And I'm actually running some book modules from call of Cthulhu. Uh, Dave, have you changed how you handle dealing with the unexpected and improv? Absolutely. It's uh, I think it just is what happens when you do more and more and more of it. And obviously in this past year, we've been able to game a lot more than we have in a long time. You I know, mean, I we're have up to like it, teenage it's just, levels. It's an know? average of like we, we played for 52 weeks. No, we took one week off. There was a really strong Dungeons and Dragons nerd Rocky montage that took place here. So we played about yeah, give 60 take. games, though. Give Oh, we were, no, games we had over the a lot going. I mean, so much so that we completed a whole, we started and completed one whole campaign, Storm Kings. You know, we're, we're nearing, uh, we were just about to start Strahd, I think, when we when we first uh, dropped the first episode. We hadn't started it yet because we were kind of still talking a little about Slaver's yeah. Bay. But that's coming towards towards some sort of end in terms of like, you know, Curse of Strahd. Yeah, and Woodstock, we went from uh, fifth level to tenth, twelfth. We're twelfth. No, we're eleven. Eleventh, I think now. Eleventh. We just hit eleventh. So to be fair, six levels. To be fair, you you were at the highest level in that game. I don't think any other games are at eleven now, are they? Or maybe one. Are we eleventh? Destroyed. I know we're eleventh in Woodstock. Yeah, no, we did not. We were eleven in Storm Kings. But uh, yeah, that was right. it. Yeah, yeah we're and, 10. And, as, we, and as we've covered, Storm Kings kind of really rocketed you through those first few levels. I mean, oh, you know, yeah. you got a level for getting your hot dog. You got yeah. a level for getting your ice for going to get the ice cream. They seem to all do that because Strahd does that as well. And I'm I've started Frost Maiden, and that levels you up pretty pretty. Yeah. Uh, not quite. It doesn't seem quite as rocket shippy. It still levels you up pretty good, you know. I think I've been able to gather from, especially talking between all three of us, but also running a lot of games and playing a lot of games, my ability to deal with the unexpected has happened because of I've changed how I prep a little bit. I don't prep as hard. I find ways to to think in bigger picture. And then like Thorin has said in previous, a lot through, through the past year, uh, 
how is the world reacting to that? Because things are just yeah. happening, you know? So it kind of, you already know how the the person or the faction is going to react because it's a real thing in a way. It's it's organic. Yeah. yeah. And that's the big thing. Even when I talk about improv that maybe I didn't hit enough in that first episode is that it's improv driven by an understanding of what is going on in my world. And that's like, like it's not just improv as far as, you know, just, Oh, well, Hey, here's, and here's what he does. You know, it's, it, it, you guys do a thing and I have the logic of the world in my mind enough where I can say, well, then he would do this and they would do that. And this would happen. It's, it's more of an act and react thing than a true, uh, you know, just out of your colon improv kind of thing. <laughs> so what about traumatized players? Tony, that was uh, your top problem from the first episode. Well, despite the fact that I played in and ran a game over five games, I really haven't experienced that over this year. Hear me knocking on wood? Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> no, no, that's exactly what I was going to say, Tone. Yeah. I, I don't feel like that's really... There were... I think there were shadows of it. There were some, yeah. There were shadows, but it not to the level that I think you were experiencing coming into episode one. Yeah, no, I, I think that's very, it can be a little difficult to wrangle when you have players with really strong uh, views on how the game world works that deviates from yours or how their characters should operate and interact with the world. And then you, you try to like explain them like, no, no, that's really not how it is. Or it's not he, like here now. And they're not having it, whether it be with treasure, with their backstory, with how a class should be played. It, it's difficult to wrangle somebody who's very rigid in that respect. And I and unfortunately didn't really have to deal with that over uh, this last year. So I'm super happy about that. Mm. I mean, there were some I mean, me sometimes like like with the monk thing, you know, there were some things that were definitely kind of like conflicty but you know we had we had this to talk them out through too and i feel like i kind of feel like this podcast has helped us talk through well what's going on with us and the players and the psychology of the game which dave you say all the time and i think that in some ways it kind of gives us that chance to not double down on things and instead to figure out to kind of take the more removed philosophical and and, and, pr and productive point of view when we're faced with those problems and approach them in a different way. Cause we've had several episodes about kind of like, you know, the, the, the challenges of the, you know, the DM and the player relationship, but we talk about them, we get each other's, you know, different, different feelings on them. And we kind of, I think we approach them a different way. I think that helps too. Cause I think it helps keep things from escalating on our end. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a very well said way. It's exactly what I've been thinking, too. We have bounced these things off because anytime you talk to people about whatever problems you're having, whether it's in life or in D&D, right, you start to get different perspectives outside of your own. I think this so it must be real, which is, you know, just crazy. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, we, we absolutely have have done that. And in as opposed to what I see a lot of times with a lot of social media posting and stuff where you have people that have these real hard line ideas about how their games are going to run or how they're going to be a player. Uh -huh. And you're like, yeah. I don't feel like you're actually playing very often because you would not be probably at a table because what we find is we're doing this in real time and we're dealing with these things as they're happening and talking them out. So I thought, I think you said that very well. I got to tell you, I've rolled in, in countless groups and I keep hearing about this super hard ass DM 
who just <laughs> right where is this person because i have never met this person i have played with more groups than i can possibly recount like this person that comes in and they're like this is how it is and my rule is law and i don't tolerate this person that guy's that person's game lasts two and a half games that's probably why I never played with him. I think he's probably gaming with your, uh, not your rules lawyer, but your rules attorney that you the, discussed, the which is a very different. Lawyer. Yeah, the rules divorce lawyer is a very different player than the rules lawyer. <laughs> right, they, they they can, you know, they have a solo campaign together. It's a match made in heaven. Yeah, the rule, they're all yeah, playing yeah. together. Yelling which was other. that was something we talked about in the first episode, yeah. you know, because Tony's one of the other Tony's other problems was we talked about the rules attorneys, but it wasn't the guy who kind of studies the rules and knows them well who was the problem necessarily. It was the guy who kind of constantly wanted to get maximum advantage, which we, it was the the rules attorney in the beginning of the episode, and we turned it into the rules divorce lawyer. He's a guy who's like, hold on, hold on, hold on, I won't just get a surprise. I got us the kids too, and, <laughs> half, that, and half of that car. Well, we're gonna make him sell really? that. Car. Really, I have a surprise where it hurts. He failed your saving throw. Like, what are you talking about? I want the crit. Gonna, I want the dog too. Give me the dog too. <laughs> yeah, page twenty-eight of the DMG says I get the dog. <laughs> I thankfully still haven't run into this person, and that's another thing that I'm glad about. Like Tony said about this past year, that we haven't run into that guy. Yeah, a lot of five E, and they did one of the things. As much as I bust on them for things like their really bad grappling rules, mm. aside from that. Uh, and I mean that affectionately. I think Dave's uh, homebrew uh, grappling rules are pretty solid in a pro oh, wrestling yeah. sense. However, in all seriousness, in the earlier editions, there was a lot more room for crazy shit to happen where people are ha using magic resistance and it's like, oh, well, you have a wall of stone. Well, I have magic resistance. Can I phase through that like Kitty Pride? Why can't I? Well, I'm phasing through it. Well, I cast anti-magic shell while he's in the middle of it. Oh, what happens then? And like, it was just this real spiral of these ridiculous what-if things that would happen live in a game. And the DM would be forced to really be like, let me use the bathroom. And by the time you came back, you needed to have an answer. And you got seven people staring at you waiting for this answer. <laughs> You know, I think calling it a real one-if game, that really does sum up second edition in a lot of ways, because we've talked about how cool it was. We've talked about how we love second edition, how cool okay. it was that, like, a lot of the spells did stuff magic. that was... Was truly magical, right? Yeah. Like, no, but Tony also, like I didn't mean to talk over Tony. Tony was saying he hated magic resistance from second oh edition. Oh, my God. <laughs> what, what the hell is that about? I cast Fireball on you. Zero effect. You mean, like, half damage? No. Quarter damage? No. No effect. I mean, <laughs> like, all the dicks. I have yeah. that kind of resistance. Tony's still no. working through his. Uh, he it, we we know about traumatized players. He's still working through his PTSD as a DM though. Between uh, second edition with magic resistance and then fourth edition with stun. Those treasure charts they had. Okay, so Thorn, you get a plus one footman's pick, and Dave, you get a plus four vorpal sword. To there you go. There you go. It seems fair. That's how it rolled. Sorry, guys. There'll be no party conflict over this randomized decision. Well, we, as we talked about before, you know, we love second edition. We do. <laughs> and setting that aside, but almost everyone who played second edition made the same house rules because there were certain things in second edition that were not put together great in the book. But one of the things that was put together was like this. It was more openly magical the spells weren't working off just damage and saves and in combat mechanics 
they were working off of stuff like, yeah, you have an anti-magic shell, and yeah, no magic can affect you inside that shell. Well, what does that mean mechanically? We said no magic. Can't you read? No magic. And things like that created these kind of open-ended effects that then the DM was like, you know, you, you basically need like like the like the DM order of operations to figure out how these things go together. Like <laughs> yeah, it's literally turns into yeah, yeah. It, it turns into Einstein. It, it turns into like an Einstein level kind of physics. You know, you you, you need to build your own standard model of how the D and D spell and effects go together. The standard model of second edition D and D that you can run the game on, and that was that led to a lot more of that kind of thing. There's still some of that in five E, but they it's since not 40, like that. It's been like, much more constrained. Oh, I have an anti-magic shell. Well, a dragon breathes on you, so therefore I take no damage because it's magic. It's black. It's a black dragon. You have acid all over you. No, I don't. Really, it's also waterproof. That's amazing. You know that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Although I will say, I think Dragon's Breath is specifically non-magical in Five E. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a biological thing. I also for, don't for miss that. those for, dual, for that purpose, probably. Dual wielding rules when you're level one, you the ambidexterity feat. You're attacking as many times as a flash at level one. Like here we go. Or as we talked about in that game, the uh, the elven build that let the one characters take like four attacks per round at first level with an Elf with a bow and book. arrow. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. and then our crazy house rule critical miss chart that meant he was basically killing another player character every game. What was the critical hit miss chart on one of my opening complaints with the it house was. rules? It was. Yes. It was. It was. It was Players with a death grip on house rolls. And what it was, we were describing what happened in your second edition game, where the one character had that really specialized Elven Archer build. Great. He shot for a ton of damage. He took, at first level, took like three attacks per round. He rolled a ton of dice. And what we figured out was every session he was going to get a one and hit another player character. And he did so much damage that unless that player character was like a fighter or otherwise maximized on constitution, they died. (laughs) Yeah, like half no. the party got wiped out. No one died to monsters. They all died to Tom Scud missile. That, that was the player <laughs> playing that character. <laughs> Watch out, guys! I'm just showering the field with arrows. <laughs> it's a Gatling gun. I built yeah. a dex bar to start that game, and like it didn't even matter because the way our, our critical miss chart worked was if you rolled a one, you hit an ally, and then you just rolled to see what multiplier was on the damage you did. There was no to hit roll, so your dexterity meant nothing. <laughs> Scud missile, no defense. No, I don't miss that either. Oh my god, if I never saw or were to look at that critical miss or hit chart, except looking back at one of our articles would be too soon the rest of my life. No (laughs) thank you. Well, you know, it's funny because we talked about house rules then. And we just now, a minute ago, talked about house ruling in Call of Cthulhu. How even some of the players are kind of pushing, hey, if you don't know the rule, if you don't like how this works, just make something up to go in there. And this is a little bit why I'm resistant to do that now, because... We have seen what goes wrong when you start making house rules and people get attached to them and they stick around and they don't work right and they cause problems down the road. Like, we don't think, I don't think we have any house rules going right now other than some really specific things like the grappling system that, that Dave built to empower Hawk Morgan. In 5e, those, those are pretty limited because the system stands pretty firmly. Marvel, I did introduce some house rules already. Like that whole thing where you, the way I'm playing your advancement uh, using your karma, that's, true, that's yeah. different. Also, I because w- I, I knew coming to the system that there was two criticisms about it. Uh, one being advancement and how slow it is and the reasoning behind it. And the second one is how they played uh, karma losses with unheroic acts. So if you killed a villain, for example, you would lose all of your karma. And well, all right. So if the technocrat 
blew the Red Skull skull off. Uh, like, oh my God, how could you do that? I'm like, he's literally worse than Hitler. And he shot him in the face. <laughs> I mean, all right, maybe that was a lot, but are we gonna are we gonna, really gonna pitch a fit over this? <laughs> like, what the? And, and I mean, technocrat's solution to everything is to shoot it in the face, preferably with a cannon. Right, with it, where his so would be. With that, with that said, because I think both of those things are good additions to the game, but specifically with Five E, like the wrestling thing, and then also with Tony, your magic items for Storm Kings, your artifacts, your like kind of legendary, yeah. wondrous items. We both approached it in a way of realizing that they put a lot of work into the system to create some level of, quote, balance, right? Mm -hmm. So we found things that they had already worked out and said, okay, can I back myself into this? As Thorne always says, can I benchmark this? And then you like your idea of using, utilizing a staff of power, but now giving it flavor. Uh, me taking some monk abilities or the, you know, certain ways of rolling certain dice and putting a little flavor on it. What I would add to that too, even with the Marvel thing, which I thought was a great addition uh, because the advancement is ludicrously slow in that system. There's no problem with house ruling. I agree with Thorne where you should probably understand at least the system before you start breaking it. Cause you might not know what you're breaking. Right. But if you make a house rule, um, a critical hit or critical, that's cool in that game. But just because I now, if if we're playing Eldritch Horror, the board game, and someone says, well, that's not how they do it in Arkham Horror. Well, no shit. This is Eldritch Horror. This is a different game. So for anything like that with house ruling, be easy with it and like approach each campaign, each session as I mean, if it's within that campaign, you've all agreed, that's one thing. But your next campaign, that's starting from scratch, you know? So you don't have to immediately say, oh, well, this is how it's all done. No, how how is that fun? You know, that takes the fun out of kind of discovering some of this stuff on your own, right? Absolutely. And, you know, even I've done some, uh, yeah, I talked about being cautious about house rolling, but I have plenty of house rolls in the Woodstock Wanderers. Gadanoth was totally homemade. I have a book with a version of Gadanothwa in it, but I got that after I put Gadanothwa in the game. And then there's all these rules about sacrificing the Gadanothwa and you can get out of that. But I don't think of those as house rules as much as I think of them as campaign specific rules. There you, you know, go. we're not doing stuff where it's like, okay, you know, we're going to run, this is going to be our critical hit, critical miss table. And then we get attached to it where no matter, even when it breaks, we're still too attached to it and we can't make, and we can't fix it, you know, which is what we had run into a little bit. At the same time, I mean, okay, you know, people had a way they like to play and they really loved it and it's okay to be attached to that. The reason it became a problem in that game as we went and doing that episode was that we literally had half the parties like, no, I love this and refuse to get rid of it. And the other half the parties like, I just lost my character to your uh, stupid house. Fourth rules. time. <laughs> my fourth character. Yeah, it wasn't one accidental death. That's I'm not what happened. We, we can't play anything that isn't a constitution-focused character. Like, there's no dex characters in this game because they can't survive the critical misses. We yeah. this is not working. It's literally cutting the character choices in half. I think wizards, that's great. No, right. no wizards. Campaign-specific uh, ruling. I think that's a great way to think of it. You well, know? Yeah. It's world-specific. You know, it's world because that's more world, world specific. Yeah. And it does, as we said in a recent article, actually, nothing really, nothing makes your game as cool as those little ways you break the rules to mm -hmm. to drive home what the setting is or to reward players or to, or to give them special things. Those special things 
are cooler and they have a bigger impact if you're giving them something they can't just get from the rules. So like there, I think it's good to do, but again, you benchmark it. I remember, um, you know, we've talked a bunch about the uh, custom items I did in Storm King's Thunder. I had a lot of fun making them for each of your characters and trying to, you know, uh, engineer them for you guys specifically. In the 4E game, Cassidus, the wizard, uh, you gave me, uh, we we fought Cthulhu twice. Uh, The first time he was really underpowered, he couldn't manifest himself. And that's when we drove the ship through his head. And then we actually fought him in the flesh. This like at the end of the campaign, we were all level 30, which uh, 4E went to level 30. Yeah. When we defeated him the first time, he left behind ectoplasm, which Cassidus crafted into a custom magical item, which you allowed me to do. So this allowed me to. It was a wand. Oh, this I love this fucking thing. <laughs> this this was the absolute bomb. So I had a wand with a Cthulhu head on it with tentacles that moved around, made from his ectoplasm. And what it did essentially was it was like a normal wand, which then grew in pluses as I leveled up. So it became my own custom wand. I could keep this as my signature item. That's a mechanic that is, I've always liked. If you give you can give a player like their father's sword or something or a special wand and you advance its pluses with them and you kind yeah. of unlock new things as they level up. It's a neat mechanic. Yeah. Got yeah. But the punchline this was if I sacrificed some hit points for the spell level, I could dip into level appropriate warlock powers so i could then you know i'd had full access to my wizard spells and then if i was going to take the the pain for it i could then dip into all these dark side forbidden powers and that's how it was all presented uh during this campaign but that was super neat it all for i was already a multi-class warlock uh it gave but this really in 4e that was very limited this really kind of blew that open and said okay with the multi-class, you have very few spell choices, but now the world is your oyster. It's not like the, the Warlock now, where you have a lot of power with few choices. They had spells that went all the way up to level freaking nine. Mm. I mean, Warlocks do in 5e. You just don't get access to them on your spell chart. You get them as your quote-unquote major arcanas. So, like, because the Warlock spell chart recharges on the short rest... But then you get additional spells that only recharge on a long rest, and they do go up to ninth level. But you don't get you you get them like once per day, you know. Yeah, this mm. you could tap into things like a twenty ninth yeah. level daily if yeah. you had you had the you had the level requirement and the hit points to trade off for that. As long as you didn't mind, as long as you're willing to bleed for it, you could have it. <laughs> Got sacrificed. Super fun. That's actually, I'd totally forgotten about that. That is actually, and I haven't done anything like that in the 5e games. Uh, meh, we'll maybe bring it back later. We'll see. We'll see what happens. It's still kind of exploring the system the first time through. That was the original tentacle wand right there. <laughs> Bonnie has a tentacle face tattoo now. The, yeah. the, the character that disturbing. Is, the, the, the character that is now uh, working with Godanathwa got a tattoo of Godanathwa's tentacle on her face, and it now it is the tentacle tattoo. I forget, I forget the actual name of that in uh, Tasha's, but she has that. Yeah, we uh, Thorin decided to pull in some of the magic tattoo stuff, which is one of the cool things in Tasha's, too. They got a lot of Yeah, I will say, it's kind of neat, because I do feel like they are, they are the Watsy releases are dipping into cool stuff, where I feel like there's always this other neat thing whenever you get a new book out. Yeah. At the same time, I feel like there aren't enough neat monsters. Like, <laughs> I wish they'd do more monster manual stuff and monsters compendium stuff, uh, rather than all these player releases. But I kind of get it, too, because, you know, players buy more yeah. PC games. 
you know, bottom yeah, line. there's, you know, what is it, 10 to 1, probably, players to DMs or more. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So, Tony, your, uh, your problems you had to start that first episode. Traumatized players, death people with a death grip on their favorite house rules, even when they're broken, and rules attorneys. Not had those problems. I guess I guess playing a lot has cured this. I've changed it. it well, I mean, I've changed groups, but I still um, played with a lot of people. So it's not like I've played people. with the yeah. same three people or the same five or even seven people. We've really uh, moved around because of the magic of the Internet while we're all trapped, uh, you know, in COVID times. So, yeah, I don't miss those things. I miss that, like, you know, being in sixth grade gym class. <laughs> not to say we don't miss the players like there's definitely you know we definitely miss the miss, miss playing with those folks and, and could do games with them again but is that just that kind of like breaking out of the kind of the, the, the group think a little bit of this is the way we always do these things right yeah I, I feel as a dm you're supposed to have inherently a degree of flexibility to keep the game fun for everybody yeah. and a, a good player should also you know maybe you have run something a certain way for a number of games or even a number of campaigns but you know I agree. Leave that with that campaign. If it's not, if, if you're getting a lot of mixed reactions to that, like that's getting a, <laughs> a mixed review. Yeah. And I got to tell you, it's hilarious. Even after that game, if I had run another second edition game, there were players 100% that would have wanted that critical hit and miss chart again. Yeah. I mean, it's, we're playing a lot with a, with wider groups uh, with some of the same players. I mean, there, there are, there's definitely some overlap and there could be even more in the future. It's a little less, you know, just this is how we do things around here and much more. We're doing a lot of different things and trying. It's it's more it's a more cosmopolitan approach to how we're doing our games. You know, we're trying a lot of different systems We're we're, we're trying to run them all by the book first and just kind of just adding stuff where we need to. And it's I think it gives us a better understanding of what we're doing. And then we get together once a week and talk about it. Which I think also gives us a better – this, you know, I, I got to say, I, I got to recommend almost any DM, start your own podcast. You know, <laughs> have your debrief session. Have you and your DM boys and girls get together and, and chat it out. Talk about, talk about, you know, how you're feeling about it and how it went. I think it's it, – I definitely feel like it's helped all of us. Yeah. I Again, same reason. I think it breaks you out of the group think of your own mind, you know, or your own group. It, it gives you different perspectives and you go, oh. I never really thought of it like that. That kind of makes sense. Or as we're all DMing and playing in each other's games, we're seeing how that plays out. So we talk about it and that's great. Anybody can talk a good game, but then we're getting behind the screen and we're getting at the table and we're seeing what works, what doesn't, and how can I alter my, my game to be better? Yeah. Yeah. It's all a breath of fresh air. The more you game, the more you change it up, the more you're talking to people about it, the the, the better you get at it and, and the better perspective you have on it. I think that's the Absolutely. big thing because it kind of breaks you out from the this is how, you know, it kind of it, it breaks all the it breaks all the power relationships. Right. It breaks all the mm. well, here's the way I do it. It's got to be my way because it's just there's just so many other opinions and you're seeing so many different things that you can't approach anything that way. You're approaching everything as well. How great. How can I do this best? You know? Yeah. 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 So how, about, uh, how about the big man himself? Yeah. What has he changed from the – your biggest one was uh, unfair or differing expectations Yeah, uh, between Which I players guess, and DMs and such. I guess hearing Tony t- rephrase what he had, I guess it kind of does align with the um, the players with a death grip on house rules and like doing things the way they've always done them or how they want mm. them done. Yeah. You know, I too want that freedom to come into a game and do it however I want. And I got to say, I feel like I have it. 
<laughs> there, there's enough games going on and enough stuff going on that I do feel like, you know, I can set the terms to a large extent of, okay, here's what we're going to play. And we have also talked a lot about ways to work this out. You know, we've talked about session zero, Dave, you've talked about session zero a lot. Yeah. Tony's talked a lot about kind of maintaining um, player interest and, in, and, in, and putting stuff in for the players in getting those kinds of, you know, kind of looking at that stuff, I think has made this better. I hope, you know, so yeah. So my two problems were when players come into the game with different sets of expectations and, you know, you're not kind of playing the same game that you thought you were going to be playing. And then the other one was, you know, you know, player is losing interest and checking out and keeping players engaged and making sure everyone's having a good time while you're playing, while you're running the game you want to run. And we, we definitely saw some of that stuff happen over the course of the year. You know, we have, we have episodes talking about kind of player DM player communication and expectations and stuff. And I think we've covered a lot of ways to, to, to improve that, you know, as far as, uh, you know, we've talked about session zero and making sure you're all kind of getting into the kind of campaign you want to get into from the beginning. Yeah. Um, I've talked about how, you know, I traditionally take it an approach to starting a game, which is okay. Everyone makes their character separately in secret. I tell them nothing about the game world. They come in and I roll it out and everything's a surprise. <laughs> everything's a discovery, which sounds great, except for in practice, it just opens the door to, well, that's not what I thought I was going to be doing. I didn't expect us to be doing vampire gaming. I thought we were going to be doing fantasy gaming and fairies and elves and happy things. And, you know, it's, it's Wait, kind I of, I, I built my drow ranger and we're now on the surface of a sun and my girly bird. <laughs> I brought a, I brought a drow to Athens. Holy shit. We're in dark. Yeah, like what the hell? Huh? Huh? I'm a human work. in the underdark. The only race without dark vision. It, and Tony talked about that, how he had the campaign. He wanted to take it into the underdark and the players were like, I don't want to go in the underdark. It doesn't seem fun. And so he wound up, that campaign wound up falling apart. Well, you know, uh, could have used one of Dave's session zeros, which did not occur on that. That was basically everybody put their games, their uh, characters together. We ran with it, and I was trying to take them in that direction. And they're like, uh, like that meme where they're like, this is where the campaign is. Hard, ridiculous, right to anything else. That's what they were going for. But if on the subject of engaging the players, one of the things that I've uh, come to terms with over the last year is if you see someone who is kind of checking out or is not participating as much during the game they're taking a more passive role go directly to them and be like mm. what are you doing um i know it's really easy to get caught up in scenes uh especially if something's really yeah. rolling but you, you know like hey what is this? okay so this has all happened and time is passing what are you doing and what are you also doing and we will get back to you so you had said coming into this episode now in the first episode, I said it's not I'm not there to entertain the players. We're there to do a thing together. And Tony, you said coming into this tonight that you were gonna you you were you were gonna disprove that. So what do you got? Well, if you you're gonna have a group an audience there and your material's gotta be I I stick it's harder for a one shot game than a whole campaign, but I when I run a game, I'm on. I feel like I'm well prepared, not ridiculously prepared. Some people may think my prep is absolutely insane for your guys amusement. I'll show you the prep I put in my Marvel one shot. You'll be like, what the fuck did you like? Really? This, this <laughs> Google doc has that many pages, but the most 72 pages, <laughs> but, but here's my point surrounding this. Um, whether you have a ton of prep or you've really, you want to run this ad lib. The question is, can you run a game? 
are you entertaining in that respect? I'd rather have a DM that can run a game, manage the flow, and keep all the players in it, and not let people go off in a million different directions or function independently for too long to the point where it's disruptive. I'd rather have that quality over anything else. Hmm. So, yeah, I still find that I don't want to care. <laughs> well, that is your, that is your right. Yeah, which, which is, I guess, you know, to, to explain that more, it's a matter of kind of what is your priority coming into the game. Now, at the same time, I will say when I DM, I absolutely blow through a ton of energy. 100%, you know, yeah, you're on. And I'm not necessarily, am I trying to entertain? You see, and that's kind of where, where the nuance was to what I was trying to say there, which is I'm not necessarily showing up to entertain the players. Like, I'm not showing up to be a performer. I'm showing up for us all to run a game we'll have fun in. And I kind of feel like there's a subtle difference because I'm not necessarily trying to go out of my way to make sure I'm entertaining. I am trying to go out of my way to make sure I give everyone a cool game and things they can interact with and hopefully we're entertained by that experience. Now, maybe that's all in my head. Maybe that is just a different way I think about it. I certainly do some funny voices poorly. I certainly do ad lib and talk with everyone. I do try to kind of engage everyone at the table and I'm, tr I'm trying to do that even more as we, you know, we're finding some of the wallflowers don't really want to be wallflowers. They just, they just need a little pushing. Whereas other wallflowers do want to be wallflowers. That's discovering that and dealing with that is a whole nother, mm. you know, kind of the balancing that is, is a whole nother challenge of being a DM. But yeah, I don't want to come in feeling like I'm going to be on stage performing for them all night. Like, do you guys like that? Is that kind of what you want to do when you're DMing? No, not at all. Absolutely not. No. Yes. Yeah. No, and I don't I don't look at it in that way either. But uh, Thorne, I would say like I would disagree with you because you absolutely are doing all of those things. You just said you were doing those things. That's I think what Tony is mainly getting at, and mm -hmm. it's kind of what we've talked about a lot in this past year is all of the, and we even say it in the very first episode. We talk about all the yeah. soft skills that it takes to DM. And I talk about how this is like an art form that knows no end because you're always improving. You're always, you're always workshopping it. Right. But you, you absolutely are running the game. So there yeah. are certain, uh, there are certain expectations and certain responsibilities that lie on you as the DM, GM, keeper, whatever you are. But as we've talked about, there are things, there are, there can be certain ways that people look at it where it's okay i'm here what do you got for me yeah and that, as and opposed to a much more communal cooperative effort you know realizing the differing responsibilities of all the people involved yeah and and what i was trying to get at you know not to get all hemingway on everyone but <laughs> there's a little aspect of what i'm really trying to say is and if you read any hemingway this comes up in some of like this comes up in the sun also rises i'm tr i'm there to dm because i want to run a game I want everyone to have fun. I want the players to have fun. I want, yeah, yeah, I want them to appreciate it. I want to appreciate them as players. I want there to be mutual respect and appreciation and engagement. But I'm coming into it not because I want to entertain them or not because I want to give these specific people, you know, specific things. I'm coming into it because I want to run a fun game that we'll all have fun with and I'll have fun with. I want to do it for my own reasons yeah. and have it play out where we all have a good time. And I guess that's a little bit where I'm coming from, because I really don't want to ever come into a D&D &D game that I'm DMing and feel like, OK, yeah, they hired me for a party. I got to come in there and be woo woo. I'm the DJ. I got to I got to bring it, you know, even though to some extent you always are, you know, yeah, yeah. unless I'm being paid to DM, I want to come in there for my own reasons with the, my own things I want to run that the players are game and enthusiastic about engaging with. And maybe that's maybe that's just semantics. 
maybe that's just the way we talk about yeah, it. Yeah, it is. Thing. It but is. But I, I get very it, where it came up from was I get very cautious about this whole idea in fourth in fourth edition and some earlier editions of D and D the DMG the DMG presented the DM's role as you're there to engage everyone and make sure everyone else has fun and make sure they're all enjoying the game and to give them the game. Like the fourth edition DMG with the eight player types was all about how you have to change what you're doing as a DM to engage these eight player types. And what you had then is a servant DM relationship that you as the DM are here to make everyone else happy. And that in as much as those eight player archetypes are very useful for crafting your game and having a game with different players, I think we really have pushed back on the idea that it's all your responsibility, right? We just ran an article um, about how good players are just as important to the game, or I guess a podcast, so not an article, about how good players are just as important as good DMs, because they really are. Because you need those players who come in and take just as much responsibility for the game as you do, not who come in and act like you're like the stripper they brought for the bachelor party. Because, you know, that's, I'm not, I'm not. What a horrifying visual. Yeah, no, it's terrifying. Yeah, you see, and this is it's a it's a it's a Lovecraftian horror, but it's not, not the kind of game you want to watch. Wrong saga, wrong saga. <laughs> well, you know, I, I treat my body like a temple, ancient and crumbling, probably haunted. With Jogoth, home yes. to a great evil. No, I don't think I think I, I agree with everything you're saying, Thorne, and I think Tony does too. The only difference I would make, and I think this is where the semantics come up, is that what you enjoy out of running a game is the thing that changes that so mm-hmm. someone who enjoys the dramatic flair or, or story and narrative is saying is going to want those kind of things it's part of their enjoyment of the game yeah but, you know so again that just comes down to there's a lot of different dm styles and none of them are right and none of them are wrong there's just mm-hmm. better groups that that goes with but you're going to learn something as we have from all the different styles. I just think that, yeah, there's a, a kind of a formula where you could set yourself up for success for that. Mm. So there's absolutely no right or wrong. If you're more improv story based, you, you counting your characters to be character driven. Uh, personally, I'd like to, when I start a game, I kind of bring everybody in like, what were you, let me talk about what your characters were doing based on the last game. Maybe you didn't even give me any input on this, but I have a feel in your character. And I'm like, hey, so you know what your character was taking with this? And you learned a new spell or you're getting close to this. And your other character and this other person's character uh, reached out to this person they had been interacting with. And they say they have something for you. And that kind of can set up the tone of the module itself. Then you lead in with your hook. You have your material, which is organized. It flows. I said this before. You should be able to talk your story out loud and explain to someone or at least run it through straight in your head without deferring to this giant whiteboard with notes all over it and lines and capes and ribbons. And if you can't do that, then go back to the drawing board and, you know, hash it out and then have a solid conclusion and a little bit of a small after party, which is nice. Yeah. And that's for a one shot. The campaign functions a little differently, but (laughs) – if they're still unhappy with that and they're running around they're like, ah, I don't like the theme of your – there is a risk inherently because you're running a one-shot. You've got a, a beginning and the an end, and they're like, I don't like the – I don't like where this is going. I like this idea. Well, you're on the – you're you've already purchased your ticket. <laughs> like you're on the ride. Like, look, I put eight hours of prep into this, and this is the one I prepped, and we're running this. <laughs> and if you don't like it, that's fine. Again, now, it's time for some character-driven story, folks. Go. You better tell me what you're doing. Yes. (laughs) 
I may recycle some monsters. But it's also, you don't want to pretend like that eight hours isn't the cost you've paid, right? I mean, you have spent eight hours. They should go through that game with you. And it becomes, the tricky part becomes, you know, okay, so where are they obligated to go with what you prepped versus what versus where are you obligated to let them deviate to the things they want to do? For me, with an improv approach, I try to do that in such a way that I don't have a high expectation you know, of what they're going to do. Or if I do, it's because they said at the end of last game, we're going to do this. And then they come into the new game and say, no, we're not going to do this now. Then I will be angry. <laughs> then I have some questions. I'm like, look, guys, you told me you're going to do this. I prepped this. Happens. What's going on? That's well, consistent session to session. I give you freedom, but you got to follow through on the things you said you're going to do. I can't, you know, I can't prep for what you wanted. And then you say you don't want it a week later. That doesn't work for me. As we talked about several times, we even, uh, we did an episode on it. I think we did an article on it too. There's something to be said about all of those different styles. So there's the open-ended campaign that's just kind of going and it's character driven and stuff. But there is something to be said about the adventure that's maybe three to six sessions long. There's something to be said about the one shot. There's something to be said about kind of the older style of gaming, right, where it was maybe a night or two and you finish through this adventure and you you get back to town. And Tony's article talks about that, too, where these one shots, we talked about it with our Christmas games and our Halloween games, um, they're palate cleansers. You know, they help to break some of what can become the monotony or just the, oh, this is what we're doing. Uh, so I think all of those things have a place. Um, so even if you're doing all improv and very open ended, there's nothing wrong with coming in with uh, a two night or three night adventure or a one shot um, that takes them on a side quest or is a completely different party just to break things up. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. But as Tony said, that does take a little bit more prep than a little more open-ended campaign does. For us, for us, we just started different campaigns. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> or just just start other campaigns. Just start rotating your campaigns. You know, guys, we've been going at this for we've been talking about this pretty long tonight. I think we want to wrap up with some final thoughts and let's talk about what do you feel like you've changed in over the last year. So, what opinions have you changed, or what opinions have you really doubled down on? Well, one of my observations over the last year, uh, because I am a heavy game prep DM, is that there's times when you need to just really hatch an idea out before you hit the keyboard and just start typing away. Because there's times, one of the things, I've said this before, like I will create a story and then ditch 75% of it. And then I'll create a story and ditch 50% of it And while that's a very interesting refining process, I'm burning a lot of time and energy on that. And after a year of prepping for games in this kind of rapid fire situation where we had all this stuff going on, it's not as necessary. Looking back upon that, I start with my core idea and then really I do the full shell first. I get the idea of the module, my villain, my scenes, my NPCs, where I'm dropping clues and then I, it's kind of like building a house. And then I fill in the rooms looking back upon that. And that's worked a lot better. I completely agree with what you said earlier. There is no preparing for the world. <laughs> There's no preparing for player free will. No, player free will is fantastic. And Storm King's Thunder was a little challenging because they really did want to push that open world mechanic. And I was in a situation like, what if we go out here? So I kind of had to have an idea about that. But know the environment well enough to be able to answer that if it comes up and know your players to have an idea 
Like, where do you think their character goals are going to lie? So even if they throw you a curveball, you know, you're in the park. I feel like, as Tony said earlier, I really had a Rocky montage of training uh, this past <laughs> year. So what was uh, what was a little more difficult back then with dealing with the unexpected and things like that is is much less now. Doesn't mean I don't get caught, obviously, but my prep has definitely helped with that. Um, again, a shout out, Secrets and Clues, Mike Shea. Second shout out for him. He's actually one of the big proponents of Session Zero. He mm. talks a lot about it. He writes a lot about it. The other person that talks a lot about it is Matt Colville. So Session Zero, if it's anybody's baby, it's theirs. Uh, and I will say, I'm glad to see, I think in Tasha's is the first time that they actually, Watsi started to actually talk about and put down guidelines for people for Session Zero. So it's obviously gained enough traction in the community. And I ran my first one in real life. Yeah at a table with people, <laughs> brand new people. I have absolutely doubled down with my kit bashing idea. I I love mods, I love them. Uh, even if I tear them apart and take parts from them like an old car, I've had a blast running through Strahd. Um, and all it makes me think is, what do I wanna run through next? You know, like I'm running, I'm starting to run through Frost Maiden now, you know? And I'm literally looking at these going, uh, I, I would totally run that one. I would run that one. Yeah, sure. It's just, it, it gives me such creative juice while still giving me some freedom to uh, to, to play and, and create that world. So, so yeah, that's where I would, uh, I've doubled down on everything, I think. The mod- <laughs> you, know, you, want to, you want to run the modules, which is great, because I don't want to play some, but I don't want to run any of them. Right, yeah, like everybody would like to be like, ooh, that looks like fun to play, but I don't want to run it. Yeah, I'll run it. Come on here. Oh, you got, got you. All right. Tomb of Horrors coming up. Or Tomb of Annihilation now coming up, right? <laughs> Sounds cozy. I, I, tell, I, Tomb actually, of Annihilation. I, I really actually want to play that one because I know Chris has been wanting to run Guys that are one. insane. That'll be my, that'll be my gift. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt gift. There you go. There you go. All right. So I guess inform me, you know, final thoughts. Yeah. It's, it's been a year, just a year in the lab, you know, other people's COVID was like, Oh, put the life on hold. I don't feel like we put anything on hold. We went, we had to figure out how roll 20 worked and how to do it online. We had to figure out how to do this podcast online. Cause we were literally scheduled to do our first recording when COVID hit. Yeah. Like we had cut, we got together in person to cut our trailer, which we should probably update now that we actually know what we're doing. And we, <laughs> and we got together to do our first episode and where we were going to, and it got canceled for COVID. And it took a couple, it took, it took some weeks before we really figured out how we were going to do it and how to do it online. But since then now, you know, by June, we were up and running. And since then, it's just been a, just this Mr. Toad's wild ride of games and podcasts and articles and games and podcasts and articles. It's been, it's been an RPG year, basically, for us. <laughs> we have, it really has. It, it, I, yeah, I don't know if I've, maybe there's a time when I was like a kid in school and I played you know, role-playing games this often, but I, I doubt it. I can't think of what it is. So this has just been one hell of a year. And I think we all, I mean, I know I definitely learned a lot as a DM and I feel like we all grew a lot as DMs. And I feel like we're all on the point now where we're like, yeah, sure, I'll run a game. You know, there's no, there's no hesitation. There, there, there's no sense of, oh, can I run a game? No, 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 there, there's, there's, there's nothing uh, holding any of us back. We're just going to jump in and do it now whenever, whenever we want to. Yeah, I'll, we'll sit down at any table. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. You know, <laughs> someone wants to run something, great. All right, I'm planning. I have, I have character ideas. What are, you, what are you looking to have in your game? We're, we're, it's, it's all I here. I have six ideas. Which one do you want? <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
I could have six character pitches in front of you in five minutes. You, what are you running? <laughs> so it's been a lot of fun. I think as far as what has changed over that time, I definitely do. I'm, I'm being more conscious about uh, what I put in the game and a little less off the cuff improv about kind of how I guide some of these games and just try to, you know, and I do try to deliver certain things, you know, uh, you know, making sure the players are engaged and having a good time, even though, you know, yeah, it's a, they could bring more of that. You know, the players need to bring engagement themselves, but trying to, trying to work more of that in and make sure everyone has a good time. It's definitely something I've, I've been doing more of now. Whereas I really started the year as look, Hey, you want to play? You want to play? I'm running the game. Here's the game. You want to be in a game? There you go. Doing a little bit less like that. Oh. And yeah, I'm doing a little more, you know, I'm still improving a ton, but I'm also doing more book stuff because yeah, it's really hard to improv clues and handouts. The, <laughs> you can't necessarily do those off the cuff. And that's really, I guess, kind of how, how my game has developed over the year. I love how we're playing so many different games. You know, the, the fact that we're playing so many different systems, I hope we can play even more systems over the over the next year. Although I imagine at some point we're going to hit the limit of how many systems can we learn, right? <laughs> as we've learned, as we've learned, because like, there are similarities, but... <laughs> Wizard spell max? Yeah, we're, we're going to hit, yeah, exactly. We're going to hit our role-playing game max. The, the DM the DM game system max. You know, what is... Who has the intelligence where we can have an unlimited number? It's none of us. That said, though, we are playing a lot, of, but we are also instituting more board game nights too. So that is true. also taking some time. Well. We've had one of those. We've had one yes. of those so far. It's, it will happen. The gaming society <laughs> continues. Absolutely. So it's been a great year, and yeah, I think we've all we've all grown a lot. Even though I guess as I'm trying to put it into specific words, it's kind of hard to put your finger on. Other than we're playing and talking about it so often that it really is growing my understanding of the game, and I think it's growing all of our understandings of how to DM. And if I had one piece of advice that I've learned this year that I'd pass on to everyone listening, it's if you can get a group of other DMs who you're playing with and talking with and and, and actually having like a debrief of some sort between games. I think that pays off. This model is, it's not only a good model for a podcast, you know, and thank you all for listening. I hope you're enjoying it, but it's a good model for how do you improve as a DM? You know, you talk to each other. It doesn't have to be a specific workshop. You just talk, you talk about, you know, what do you want to do? What are you trying to do? What's working? What's not working? And I think that gives you great perspective on how you can be a better DM, which is what this podcast has always been all about. So guys, thank you very much for this episode and the whole year, man. It's been, it's been a great run. Woo-hoo! One Fantastic. year. Yeah, we are not stopping. You you will see you will see at least as much three wise DMs over the next year as you have over this year. And we're gonna keep pushing forward with the articles, with the podcast, and we'll see we'll see what the future holds. We have some interesting things we're talking about doing. So everyone listening from home, thank you all for listening and for helping us grow this podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please smash that five star rating button, give us a good review, tell your friends. All this stuff really helps us grow. And over the last year, we've seen how important that is. And we really appreciate all of you for helping, helping us grow as a podcast. Anything you want to hear us talk about, please send it in to, at uh, threewisedms at gmail.com or go to our website, threewisedms.com and add it into the what's your problem field. Or we're also very active on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can contact us there and we're very responsive. And that's it. That's it for, for, for the first year of three wise DMs. Great job, guys. Woo! I just feel like I, one of you should run to me and I'll lift you up, you know? I'm also the group ogre. <laughs> and on that note, 
on that bombshell, we're going to wrap up this this first year of Three Wise DMs. We'll be back next week for, I guess, what'll be the start of our second year, perhaps the second season of Three Wise DMs. We'll catch you then. Thanks a lot for listening in. We'll see you next week on Three Wise DMs. <laughs>